Welcome to the Wellspring Church Podcast. We're an international church family who wants to see Jesus' love transform communities. This recording is a sermon from our Sunday service and will take you deeper into the Bible in a real and relevant way. It is absolutely wonderful to be with you. Thank you, uh, David. Thank you, team. Thank you for the invite. Um, and the honour of just, in some small way, sharing the journey with you. And I welcome the plant. Come on. Come on, we welcome the plant that's been introduced. So it is wonderful to be with you. A great, great joy uh, to share with you. And thank you so much for the warmth and the welcome and the hospitality that I've enjoyed so far. We've had a beautiful first service. And thank you also to the team, the, the worship team, who led us so well. And well, they'll come back. And uh, when I've preached too long, they, you'll see them coming back and sorting me out at the end as well. So uh, it's just a joy uh, to be with you. I've been given special permission to just give one shameless plug of the day. Uh, and that's sort of it. So since the last time I've been here, uh, I've written another little book called Second Chance, The Fall and Rise of John Mark. And uh, some of you may know who John Mark is. An amazing story. There are nine references to this mysterious person called John Mark in the New Testament and you have to do a little bit of detective work to put it together but it's essentially a story of incredible opportunity he sort of blows it in the middle and then he gets restored and he becomes an amazing person but when he blows it actually it's such an, a, an incredible moment that a man called Barnabas and Paul who were great friends sort of fall out over this young man and they don't quite know what to do with them. And, and they separate as a result of that. So he's a very interesting character in the New Testament. And it's a story of restoration and repurposing. What most people don't know is the John Mark we meet in Acts chapter 12. And who runs away from Paul and Barnabas on his first missions trip. Becomes the first writer of the gospel. He's Mark in the Gospel of Mark, and he becomes the Bishop of Alexandria, an amazing church in the first century world, and he ends up dying a martyr's death. It's an incredible story. It's a story not only of just reintroducing John Mark back to an audience that I think are not really aware of his story, uh, many places I go, but also we all resonate with a second chance story. And so if you're interested in that, I'm not here to sell books, I'm here to teach, but if you're interested, that, that is downstairs. And I'm going to give this book to this lady. Now you can have that one. Bless you. One of those, one of those ladies probably hidden in plain sight. Isn't that right? Sort of doing her job all the time and you sort of see her, but don't. So thank you. I hope you enjoy the book. And if you don't, don't tell anybody. And if you do, pass it on. All right then. Brilliant. Okay. So listen, if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to take a reading, as you can see from the screen, from the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis and we're going to read from uh, chapter 4 in just a moment while you're, while you're finding it, if indeed you're looking that up. Let me just say that we're beginning a series today called Authentic Relationships. Scary subject. Okay, so if that doesn't make us all nervous, then it really should. Um, because I was nervous when I was given the title to teach on because this is a, a, a vitally important type of conversation for a church like us, we've just welcomed some beautiful people into partnership in the journey of this church. But actually, part of being part of the church community is not just that we get the amazing opportunity to worship the God of heaven and the Savior of the world, but we have to learn to do life with everyone in the room. And actually, that's a scary challenge for many of us. And if we're honest, even as followers of Jesus, 
that is not difficult. And over the next seven weeks, you're going to have moments of great discomfort. If you stick with the series, if you're here either every week or you listen to it on podcast, if we're listening with our eyes, uh, our eyes on, the, on the Word of God and our ears open to the Word of God, then there are going to be moments of great discomfort. There may even be a few of those this morning. But I want to encourage you, don't run away from it. Stick with it. Because I've discovered that often discomfort is one of God's ways of getting my attention about me. All right? Now, whatever you do with it, uh, that discomfort is God speaking to me. And and sometimes in my journey in the church, I've had a tendency to blame some of the stuff in my heart on the people around me. Because that's an easy... That's an easy blame. Well, the reason I'm feeling the way I'm feeling is because it's your fault. But, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes it is your fault. Sometimes it is the other person's fault. But can I say many times it's been something inside of me. And I've discovered this. That if I, and I'm 55 years of age and I've been in the church a million years or so. So I've been part of the journey of the church since I was eight years old as a follower of Jesus. Uh, that, that actually this journey is about me thinking about my relationship with the Lord. It's about me thinking about my relationship with you. And in the mix of that, it's, it's me thinking about my own heart. And actually, they are dynamic combinations, which are life-giving, but also deeply challenging. Is that okay? So hopefully this series will help you. For those that are following me in this series, I do hope I set you up well. And if I don't, uh, blame, blame David because he asked me to do this. All right, so it's, it's, it's Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to read this beautiful passage together. Just the first 16 verses. won't take as long and then we'll jump straight in. <clears throat> so here we go. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain And his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It it desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Wow, what a story. This is a remarkable story and it's very, very powerful. If you take the time to read the book of Genesis, we are dramatically introduced to the idea of community. In fact, our understanding of God is that somehow God is community. He says, let us make. And when God makes the universe, makes the things that we see around us today, the pinnacle of that creative moment in God's thinking is the creation of a community that carries his image. The first man, the first woman are made in the image of God. And actually, they are made to reflect that image in many ways, but especially in the idea of community. The community of God, we would understand that as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He now makes a community of humans. And he wants those communi that, that community of humans to work and live together, to enjoy each other, but also to enjoy each other in the context of enjoying him. And so this idea is that God wants to walk in community with the humans and show the, the humans how to walk in community so that their community can reflect his glory. That's the hope. That's the, the ambition. That's the idea. Tragically, the humans decide their way is better than God's and they reach out for another plan. And as a result of reaching out for another plan, God's idea is fractured. And so you get a dramatic moment of fracture where the relationship between the humans and God is fractured. They cover themselves up, they hide in the bushes, they run away from God's presence. And then the relationship between the humans gets fractured. They immediately start fighting one another. And that becomes a bit of a theme in Genesis. Genesis is filled with conflict. And even a casual reading of the book of Genesis, you've got lots and lots of conflict going on. You've got conflict between Noah and his sons. You've got conflict between Abraham and Isaac, though very few people want to talk about that conflict. You've got conflict between Isaac and his brother uh, uh, Ishmael, his half-brother. You've got conflict between uh, Jacob and Esau. You've got conflict with Joseph and his brothers. And I'm just like scratching the surface of the book of Genesis. If you want lots of detail on conflict, the book of Genesis is there. And here's what I love about the Lord. The Lord doesn't run away from that. <clears throat> In fact, he draws us <clears throat> into these conversations because he wants us to understand there are things that we need to learn about that. And when we come to this story, the story of Cain and Abel, I mean, if I'd have been writing this story, I'd have just brushed over the detail. I'd said, well, you know, Adam and Eve had a son called Cain. Then they had another son called Abel. Oh, and by the way, Cain killed Abel. Let's move on to the next bit. But the Bible slows this story down painfully. Painfully. And it's forcing us to look and ask some big questions. Now, here's the problem we have with Cain and Abel. If you've been around the church anytime, or even if this is your first experience of the church, you may have heard this story. We tend to think we know what this story is about. It's about uh, one brother being jealous of another brother, and therefore he killed him. 
And if you go there and you go there too quickly, you're going to miss amazing detail in this story, which is much deeper and much more profound, and can I say much more challenging than jealousy. If we reduce this story down to sibling jealousy, we're going to galactically miss the point of the story. Don't rush to the murder scene. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Okay, we'll get to the blood in a minute. All right, just hold on a minute. Before we get to the murder, a whole bunch of stuff is happening first. Because this story is not just a record of the first murder. It's also the record of the first act of worship. And the two things seem to be connected. So, so let me show you something. Let's that's, that's, that's begin the, the textual journey. What we're going to do is sort of do a bit of detective work. We're going to work through the text, work some stuff out, and then come to co some conclusions. Is that okay? Yeah. You with me? All right, here we go. So here's the first bit of text that I want us to think about in the context. Of verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first born of his flock and of their fat portions. Just a piece of information. Now again, dead easy just to rush past that, but that seemingly innocent piece of information is telling us some important details if we'll slow down and read this carefully. Because actually, if you look at the background of this, there are two big ideas that really do stand out, which aren't obvious in the text. The first one is this. They weren't asked to do this. Did you notice that in the text? It doesn't say God asked for an offering and then they brought their offering. In fact, it just says in the course of time, they brought their offering. So without being asked, without God requiring the offering, these two men are bringing an offering to God. And the second thing to notice, which is sort of linked to that, is they weren't told what to bring. Now, now you say, well, John, well, why is that important? What's, what's the point in that? Well, it's really important because it means when we read in verse 3 that they brought an offering, this is not random. This is not just uh, a sort of a random event that is happening uh, out of them. This is an expression of something that is going on. And in fact, it seems to suggest that both of these men already have a relationship with the God they're bringing the offering to. Now, let me show you something in the background. In the build-up to chapter 4, there's an amazing thing that happens in the book of Genesis, which really helps us. When we're introduced to God in Genesis 1, he's just called God, Elohim. And in fact, his name, God, is mentioned 32 times in the first 34 verses of Genesis. He's the big player in the story. And he's introduced to us in the third word of the text, God, and then we see this amazing work of this creator God in Genesis 1 down to Genesis 2 verse 3. So God is introduced to us. When we move into Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the language moves from God to Lord God. It's softened a little bit. It feels a bit more personal because it is. Because what's happening in chapter 2 and 3 is that we're now seeing God having a relationship with the man and the woman. They're, he's walking with them. He's talking with them. He's engaging with them. There's something going on there. And so he's no longer just the God out there who created the world. Now he's the God who is Lord because he's having a more intimate relationship with the humans. 
And then when we get to chapter 4, sorry, when we get to chapter 4, move too quick. When we get to chapter 4, we have this Lord. So it goes from God, the creator, to Lord God, who's having a conversation with the man and the woman, to now Lord. Now, now, now what's the point in that? The point is this, is that there's a sort of a trajectory. In the Genesis story, we're moving from the God who's out there, the God who created the universe. We're not quite sure who he is in Genesis 1.1, to now this God is now much more known by the time we get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, the suggestion is that Cain and Abel know this God. They've got some form of relationship with him. And with that, they've got some form of knowledge. Now, we're not quite sure what that relationship looked like. We're not quite sure sort of what went on there. But the suggestion is, by introducing the Lord in chapter 4 as Lord, that Cain and Abel, who now bring their offering, know this Lord. It's not just random. It's not weird. It's not just, just sort of accidental or incidental. This is a deliberate moment of bringing something to the Lord they know. Are you with me? So they've got some sort of relationship with him, whatever that looks like, and they know something about him, whatever that means. And that's why it's important to know that when then we read this. Because the response of God to the two men then is not random. It's not incidental. The Lord is responding to two men who already have a relationship with him and who already know something about him. So in other words, if he's responding to two men who have a relationship and know something about him, then this response is not cold. This is a response of the heart of God to the two men who have a relationship with him. And know something about him. And look what it says. It says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And he had no regard for Cain and his offering. Now that's an awkward moment in the Bible, right? And when we read an awkward moment like that, you and I should be asking one question. And if you're not asking the question, then you're not concentrating when you're reading the story. All right? We're just rushing past to have our coffee to get to work, right? But if you're reading this text carefully, you come to that verse, one question should dominate our thinking. And what is it? Why? Why? Exactly. That verse is begging us to ask that question. In fact, when you read the Bible, it's often written in a way that begs you to ask questions. It introduces awkward moments in the text to make you ask the question because it's in asking the question we're about to get an answer to something deeply profound. If we miss this question, we rush to the murder scene and we conclude it was a murder in a fit of jealousy. And if we conclude that, we are missing the point. God, before we get to the murder, wants to show us there's something else going on here. And actually, if we're prepared to ask the why question, then we're prepared to see something much, much deeper. And this is deeply awkward. And I love the awkwardness of the Bible. That's, it convinces me that it's inspired by God. Because if I wrote it, I would rub out all the awkward bits. I would make those awkward bits disappear. But God introduces the awkward because that's to get our attention. 
He's begging me to say, ask why. And I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus. And I love the Lord that we've been worshipping today. And my ambition is to please that God. Now, I know I'm saved by grace and there's nothing I can do that can merit anything he's done for me. But I still want to please him. I still want to do the right thing in my world. And so when I read something like that, I want to know what he doesn't like. Come on. And I want to know what he does like. Is that fair enough? Now, I know I'm saved by grace. There's nothing I can do that can merit my salvation in Jesus. He's done it all. And that's all by his grace. But now that I'm in a relationship with that God, there are things that that God likes and he's attracted to. And there are things that that God doesn't like and he moves away from. And as a serious follower of Jesus, I want to know, what is that? I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. Do you? I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. I want to be someone who knows what he likes and gives him what he wants. Yeah. Come on, are you with me? Yeah. That's at the heart of our journey as a people. Now, here's the problem we have. When we read Genesis, it's not immediately obvious why God rejects Cain and his offering. Is that fair? As you read that, like, it's really hard to work that out. So we've got to do a little bit of detective work. We're going to do a sort of a who done it? Now, here's the problem we have. We know who done it. So we know Cain did it. Our who done it today is about why did he do it? What's going on here that caused a man to kill his brother? And in order to work it out, we've sort of got to go to the New Testament bit of the Bible. So this is really helpful. When the New Testament writers are writing, some of them reflect back to the story and they're really helpful to us. They explain some of the detail. They sort of explain it and exposit it to us. So this is really helpful. It doesn't happen with every Old Testament story, but it really happens with this one. So if we go into the New Testament, hook into the clues given to us by these New Testament writers, we go back to Genesis and there's a whole bunch of stuff we can learn. So let's go to the first New Testament writer, the first person who we're going to reflect with who makes a comment about Cain. And look at what he says. It's really, really fascinating. So this is found in a letter called 1 John. And 1 John is a letter where John is encouraging the Christian community to really work on authentic relationships. In fact, John says, you can't love your brother and sister who you do see if, if, if actually you're, or sorry, he says you, you can't say you love God who you don't see if you're struggling to love your brother and sister who you do see. So John connects our relationship with God with our relationship with each other. And here's what he says in the middle of his letter. He says, do not be like Cain. Now, let's stop there. Is he saying, don't kill each other? Well, of course he is, but that's not really what he's saying here because because the general law says, well, let's not murder one another. So he's not just referring to Cain's murder of his brother. He's leaning into something else. He says, do not be like Cain. Now look at this language. It's really troublesome. Who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Wow. Now we're given a bit of a clue. So now we can look at the Genesis 4 story and take 1 John chapter 3 into the story. And what are we learning? Well, well, we're introduced to two big ideas when thinking about Cain. 
The first idea we're introduced is that there's something going on in Cain's attitude that God is referring to. And John hints at this very, very strongly when he refers to Cain's attitude as one who belonged to the evil one. Now, you read Genesis 4, there's no, there's no clue of that in the text. So what does John mean? Does John mean like Cain was demon-possessed or something, or he was a devil worshipper? Is that what he means? No, no, he doesn't mean that. John is using this in a way to say this. His heart belonged to the evil one, and what he, he's really saying is his heart wasn't the Lord's. Are you with me? So John is hinting at an attitude issue. He's pointing to something. He's saying there's something in the attitude of Cain which the Lord doesn't like. And he covers it with this idea that he belonged to the evil one. There's something in the heart of Cain that's not allowing him to connect to the Lord. Now, this really makes sense. Back to Genesis. We're going to jump around here. This goes back to Genesis here where our verse says this, that actually the Lord had regard, look at the language, for Abel and his offering. And the Lord had no regard for Cain and his offering. Now look at this. Look at it closely. We slow it down. The Lord is not simply rejecting the offering. He's rejecting something in the person. Cain and his offering. I tried to convince my mother that the Lord rejected vegetables. And therefore, I didn't have to eat my vegetables because Cain was a farmer of the ground. And therefore, you know, if God rejected carrots, then I should be allowed to reject carrots. And that's okay. It's in the Bible. My mother didn't wear it, and she made me eat all of my carrots, um, regardless of my argument. Now, now here's, the, the, here's the point. Actually, it's not that God likes lamb over carrots. That's not what's going on here. There's something in the heart of Cain that God is pushing back on. John says he belonged to the evil one. Now, back to the New Testament. You're with me? We're jumping around here. So another little clue in the story. The writer to the Hebrews then helps us with this argument in that he makes reference to the attitude of Abel. Okay? So John's made reference to the attitude of Cain. Now, the writer to the Hebrews makes reference to the attitude of Abel. Look what he says. Look at the language. Very, very powerful. He says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Look at that. Look at that. The emphasis here is not on the offering of Abel. What's it on? What's it on? The faith of Abel. There's something in the heart of Abel that makes the offering acceptable. It's not that God is just saying, oh, I prefer lamb over carrots. It's the fact that God is responding to an attitude in Abel that isn't in the heart of Cain. Are you with me? Are you with me? Does that make sense to you? Now, this is really important to John thought we were talking about authentic relationships. Well, we are. We can't get to the murder moment without understanding what brought us to that moment. And this is so, so, so important. Now, look at, look at Cain's response. What was Cain's reaction? When God said to Cain, no, I'm not receiving your offering, 
What was Cain's reaction? Now, the Bible's really, really explicit here. And the Bible tells us that Cain was very angry. Now, who's he angry with? It's not a trick question. Who's he angry with? God. He's not angry with Abel. Abel didn't reject Cain's offering. God did. Now, Cain is angry. Uh, literally, the word there for anger is, is to burn. He is burning against God. It's a very strong image. In fact, when sometimes they describe God as being long-suffering, the imagery is literally God is long of nose. So in other words, his burning anger is far away from his face. That's the idea. So me and God have a lot in common uh, in terms of our, our long nose there. But, but it's that idea that, that when God is long-suffering, what's he doing? He's removing the burning, his anger, away from his face. When we look at Cain here, Cain is burning with anger towards God. Wow. So he's not angry with Abel. He doesn't kill Abel because he's angry. He's now angry with God. Okay. So there's a lot going on here. Now, when God rejects Cain's offering, Cain's reaction is anger. And again, as we rush to the murder scene, we miss a piece of information potentially. It's right in front of us. And let me try and explain it this way. I'm married to Dawn. Dawn and I have been married 34 years. And this is a picture I took of her at the Danube. Last summer, we went to Budapest for our anniversary. We do sort of city breaks and we walked all around the city. What a beautiful city. If you've never been to Budapest, put it on your list. It's definitely worth going to. Now, I've been married Dawn to Dawn for 34 years. I sort of, now after 34 years, I know what she likes. At least I should do, right? If I don't, I'm not really sure where I've been living. I know what she doesn't like. I know what blesses her. I know what irritates her. So when I come to buy a present for Dawn or do something for Dawn, I have a fairly good idea that what I'm about to put on the table, she will like. Is that fair? Okay. And, and this trip to Budapest was, was, was something like that because I know she loves walking. I know she loves exploring beautiful cities. I know she loves those sort of new adventures. So all of that ticks the boxes. So, so I've been living with her 34 years and I know. Now imagine, imagine here I am wanting to please Dawn, wanting to bless Dawn, wanting to do something wonderful for Dawn. I put a gift on the table and she takes that gift and she throws it out the window. What should my reaction be? You're all looking at me thinking it's a trick question. He's, got, he's set me up here. Now, he, here's what my reaction should be. If I love Dawn and my gift is about pleasing Dawn, my reaction should be, what have I done wrong? Why don't you like this gift? Why don't you want what I thought you wanted? Now let's go back to Genesis. Are you with me? Cain doesn't ask the question. It's the most obvious question in the, in the text. If, if I brought an offering to God, a God I wanted to please, a God I wanted to bless, and that God said no, and my ambition was to please that God, my first question should be, 
Why? What have I done wrong? Why don't you like carrots? Right? What is it you're rejecting because you've accepted his and you've rejected mine? So what is it I've done wrong? Because I want to please you. I want to do something that honors you and blesses you. And the fact that Cain doesn't ask that question suggests that his offering wasn't about pleasing God. Cain is not giving, he's buying. Cain is not doing something to pleasure God, he's doing something to position himself. This is not about honoring God and pleasing God. This is about Cain serving himself. This is not an attitude of surrender and service to the Lord, but one of self-service to the Lord. The Lord is not rejecting Cain's offering. He's rejecting Cain's self-service attitude. That's what John refers to as evil. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says Abel's offering was by faith. Why? Because by faith, Abel gives something, no strings attached. That's what worship is. Worship is giving to God, no strings attached. Service and seeking to please the Lord is serving him because he's the Lord. Not because if I do this, God will give me that. Or if I please him over here, well, he's going to bless me over there. Now, does all of that happen? Does the Lord want to bless you and do amazing things for your life? Of course he does. But actually, those that want to please the Lord, we learn to come to him and give to him no strings. Because when we learn to give without strings, here's what's happening. We're giving by faith. We're giving with an attitude that he loves and he responds to. Because the gift that I'm giving him, whether it's my worship or my money or my time or my effort, whatever I'm giving him, I'm giving it to him because it's him. Because I want to please him. I'm not giving it to him in order to get something back for me. I'm giving it to him because I want to please him. Are you with me? You sure that makes sense to you? So this awkward moment of God rejecting the offering is made even more awkward because of the silence of Cain. Cain doesn't ask the question. The question he should ask. Why has God rejected my offering? Are you with me so far? A couple more things and then we'll bring this into land. Not only does John show us Cain's attitude, but linked to that then is his actions because we all know, everybody knows in this room intuitively, that the attitudes you have on the inside affect the actions on the outside. Is that fair? Now, there's a whole big biblical argument about that that supports that. But even if you don't know any of that, intuitively, you know as a human that the things you, attitudes you have on the inside affect your behavior on the outside. So Cain's attitude is not one of pleasing God. It's one of buying God, if you like. And his actions reflect that. Now look at what John says. John says his actions were evil. That's really strong language. So John has described Cain as being belonging to the evil one. Wow, that's really harsh. And then his actions are evil. So John's not messing about here. But in what way were Cain's actions evil? Now, third New Testament writer helps us with this. This is the last bit of detective work we're going to do. So we go to Jude the half-brother of Jesus. And Jude writes these words. Now, Jude is writing to the church and trying to warn them of 
of false teachers that are coming in and hurting the church. And he's trying to warn them against what they're doing. And Jude says this. Look at this language. It's so powerful. He says, woe to them. Look at this. They have taken the way of Cain. And then he goes on to say, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. And then thirdly, they have been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. Now, John, what is all that about? Well, here's a little clue for you. If you're ever reading the Bible in the New Testament and you see a reference to a story or a verse in the Old Testament, always go back. Always just check it out. Because the writer did it to, to whoever's writing this is trying to get you back to understand something that'll make sense of the text. And when Jude writes, he writes to an audience that probably know these two stories. The story of Balaam and the story of Korah. So we get these three ideas sort of all put together. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Now, let's go back and do a bit of detective work. So when we check out what Balaam's error is, very, very interesting. Balaam was a sort of a prophet in the Old Testament. We read about him in the book of Numbers. And Balaam has been asked by the enemies of God's people to curse God for payment. Uh, to, sorry, to curse the people of God for payment. So they come to him and they say, we'll give you lots of money if you can get God to curse the people of God. It's a really interesting story. Now it's found for us in the book of Numbers. Uh, and there's a lot more to it, but that's sort of it. So what's, what's going on? What's the, the error of Balaam? I suggest to you it's this, that he's using God for gain. He's being asked, can I say this carefully? To manipulate God for his own gain. Okay, you're with me? Now this is an important moment because we, we are reminded here of who, the, who, who God is. See, you know, that God is God and we are not. And that actually what Balaam is being asked to do is get God to do what he wants God to do, not what God wants to do. And he's doing that for personal gain. Are you with me? Stay with me. You're doing great. I know this is probably making your head hurt, but stay with me. It'll all come together in the end. What is Korah's rebellion? Well, again, that's in the book of Numbers. And it's interesting, the book of Numbers I, I like numbers in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible refers to numbers as Bamidvar, which is in the wilderness. These two terrible stories of Balaam and Korah take place in the wilderness, which is a sort of a clue as to maybe uh, how they're doing. They're in a wilderness experience when all of this happens. And Korah's rebellion, again, there's a lot going on there in Numbers 16. But if you look at it closely, Korah's rebellion summarized is trying to replace God's authority. Now look at this. Stay with me now. We're almost there. By putting the way of Cain together with Balaam's error and Korah's rebellion, here's what Jude is suggesting, that Cain's actions were about two things. Getting God to do what he wanted God to do and usurping God's authority. Now, this is a familiar theme already. We're only in chapter four of Genesis and we've come across this already. We've seen the fall of Adam and Eve who reached out to be like God when they were already like God. What are they doing? They're taking God's place, God's authority. The fall of Lucifer, who we know as the devil, he falls out of heaven. Why? Because he tries to reach for God's position. 
and in reaching for God's position, he loses his own. So what's happening here? Let me, let me summarize this for you. Cain's attitude and actions reveal his agenda. What's his agenda? His agenda is he wants to be the master. He wants to rule. Now, how do I know that? Well, let me take you to the only time in the story uh, in, in terms of Cain's attitude, God speaks. So this is God challenging Cain now, challenging Cain's attitude. And look what the Lord says to him. Look closely at these words. God comes to him and says, well, you know, why the long face? Why are you angry? And then the Lord says this. He says, he says if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, look at this, sin is crouching or lying at your door. Now, there's a double image there, potentially. Sin's literally lying at his door, which means if he opens its door, sin could come in. Or when he tries to get out of his door, sin's going to have him. It's crouching. It's, it's, it's waiting for him. So whatever way you read that, it's cool. It's a really powerful image that, that sin is ready to pounce on Cain on this issue but here's what the Lord says it desires to have you but you must rule over it now there's a gorgeous little nuance in the text here and it's not obvious but it's there it's suggested here's what's happening Cain is trying to master God he's trying when he brings his offering he's trying to get God to do what he wants God to do and God is saying I I'm I'm not going to do that I, I'm not going to play your game. And then God in turn says to him, now that attitude you have of trying to master me is crouching at your door. If you don't watch it, that will master you. You with me? That will master you. Are you, are you waiting to come? You can see you're like, come on in. You come up, you can get to band ready. I'm bringing this to a close. It's always a clue. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. So you're with me. So, so, but actually, so here's what's happening. Cain wanted to be the master. But now his attitude and actions to be the master are, in, are making him vulnerable to be mastered. Okay. You're with me? This lands in a terrible climactic moment. And here's the murder now. We've eventually got to Abel. Okay? Because some of you are... When are we going to get to the murder scene? Well, this is it. Here we go. Okay, here it is. Now look at this very, very carefully. Look at the language. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, look at it. Cain rose up against his brother. And he killed him. Now note it doesn't just say he killed him. Look at the language. He rose up. He rose up. The implication is he rose over his brother. And the idea here is that Cain could not master God. So what does he do? He does the next best thing. He tries to master his brother. And he does it in the most catastrophic way. The story of Cain is not a story of jealousy. It's not a story of insecurity. It's not a story of a young man getting too emotional that he just blows his stack and kills his brother. No, no. This is much deeper than this. It's a story of mastery and control. Cain is trying to master God 
And he can't get away with that one. So instead of mastering God, he masters his brother and he kills his brother. And ladies and gentlemen, as we begin our series on authentic relationships, we can't bypass this idea. The greatest enemy to authentic relationships in the Christian community is your desire to be master. Not many amens there, and I wouldn't expect many, but it's the truth. That actually humans have tried to master God. How's that worked out? Not so well. But then when humans try to master other humans, it's a disaster. When I try to impose my will on you, it's a disaster. And actually the Christian community is not about me mastering, but me learning to serve and give myself to the people around me. And actually, it's my surrender to God and, and not trying to master him that empowers me to serve the people around me better. That's why these two things are linked. For us as a Christian community, for people out there, this is not part of their argument. For us, it's a very important part of the argument. We cannot think about each other without thinking about him. And if we really think about him and claim to love him and worship him and serve him, then we cannot leave it there, up the way. That has to translate out the way to the people around us. And let me, let me close with these ideas. Do the rest of the band want to come to get yourselves ready? I've discovered this, that my wants over God's will is a great enemy to authentic relationships. Especially when it comes to community. What I want over God's will. It's, it's you know, we are we're celebrating Black History Month this, this month. And actually, many people I've met over the years say, I'm not a racist. But, but often what I found is people believe that because they're surrounded by people who are just like them. It's easy not to be racist when everyone in your world looks like you, is like you, thinks like you, sees the world like you. The test is when we're in a community of diversity. The test is when we're sitting beside people we wouldn't normally sit beside. And that's when my want and God's will come into clash. Come on, are you with me? When I want to impose what I want over God's will that actually that's where the clash comes, if I'm really honest. And many, many times I struggle with you because I'm not surrendered to him. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel was a reminder of the voice of God in his world. He wants to extinguish that voice that reminds him that God rejected, not him, but his stinking attitude. God didn't reject Cain. God loved Cain. But he was rejecting the attitude of Cain. And Cain had to learn that my wants must surrender to God's will. Come on, are you with me? Here's the second idea, and I'm drawing this to a close. Great challenge to authentic relationships is when my will is imposed over another person's way. Can I say this? If I come into Wellspring and my attitude is, I'm going to be the master. Authentic relationships are impossible. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he writes to husbands and wives. He writes to parents or fathers and children. And he writes to 
slave owners and slaves, all in the Christian community, very, very troublesome passage of scripture that's caused lots of controversy over the years. But he begins that passage by saying, out of love and reverence for God, let us submit to one another. And in other words, in other words, if you turn up wanting to be the master, authentic relationships are impossible. If the husband wants to be the master over the wife, it's going to be a tough gig. If parents see their role only as masters, if, if employers or slave owners see their slaves or their employees only as people to be mastered, Come on, are you with me? Then it's impossible to build the sort of relationships we want to build. I love what Rabbi Sack says. He says, without sacred order, there is no social order. Story of Cain and Abel. I could have come this morning and just, just hit the normal buttons that we all think happened. Oh, jealousy, insecurity, rage. All of those things are probably in the mix somewhere, but the Bible text takes us some, somewhere deeper. Cain's actions against his brother were actions of mastery because Cain wanted to be the master over the Lord and the master in his world. And when we are intent in mastering God and mastering his world, then authentic life-giving relationships are impossible. So the challenge today for me and you, challenge for me, let me talk about me and I'm closed. Am I prepared to surrender to the will of God over my wants? Been singing a beautiful song this morning, I say yes, gorgeous song. But when I think of words like that, I think of stuff like this. I don't think of heaven, I think of like, how do I do life with you? Are we prepared this morning today to surrender our wants to his will? Are we prepared to come into a community like this and not be the master? Somebody once said, you will never look into the eyes of a human who is not loved by God. And the challenge for each of us is how we see each other through the eyes of our God. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. I hope that's made sense to you. The story of Cain is one hidden in plain sight. It looks like an obvious story. But the message within it is deeper and much more troublesome than often we want to admit. Lord, if I am honest, so often the challenges in my life is when I've tried to impose my wants over your will. That Lord, if I'm honest, the challenge in many, not all, but many of the relationships I'm in is when I try to impose my will over their way. And the Lord wants to challenge us this morning to first of all surrender to him 
trust him, put our lives, our context into his hand as we make the journey with this community. But secondly, to not come into a community seeking to be the master, to rise up over your brother or your sister, whoever they are, but to come into a community like this to serve and to give and to love and to accept. Is that easy? Absolutely not. Will there be pain? Of course there will. Will there be misunderstanding and difficulty? Absolutely. But that is the journey to building relationships that are not just good, but are genuinely authentic. And so, Lord, I want to pray for these wonderful people standing before me. We're all on different stages of the journey, Lord. Lord, will you help us to be men and women who, first of all, surrender to you. Who understand that your will for our life is not to harm us or hurt us, but to form something glorious and amazing and outstanding in our lives. Lord, forgive us for the moments where we have sought to be the master over you. We don't want to have the heart of Cain. We don't want to go the way of Cain. Lord, we want to have the heart and the desire of Abel who by faith came and surrendered to you. We want to be people who have you at the center of our world and to worship and honor you. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters as we, as we think about one another. Lord, will you help us to be men and women who realize that we are not called to this community to be the masters, but to serve one another, to love one another, to accept one another, and to give to one another. Lord, forgive me for the moments when I've walked into rooms and sought to be the master. Forgive me when I've looked at people and in my heart felt superior or arrogant in their presence. Help us to be men and women who reject the rising up of Cain and who instead embrace the surrender of the Spirit and the way of Jesus. So Lord, I pray you'll bless each one of us, help each one of us, lead each one of us and enable this community to be a beacon of light as it displays authentic relationships in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed and encouraged by what you've heard. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, Wellspring Church, or how you can grow with others in faith, connect with us by clicking the link in the episode description or by joining us on Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. in person and online.